Well, I hope everyone has enjoyed Colossians. I know I have enjoyed studying it out and looking, um, looking at the text. I really, really enjoy the Pauline um, epistles. And uh, today we are going to be looking at Colossians as we move through these, through these books. Um, so really quick, uh, this is, the book of Colossians is kind of like the other books we've been reading here recently, where it is a um, prison epistle. It was written in likely 62 AD, around the same time as um, Ephesians and Philippians. They're kind of written around the same time where Paul is in Rome. He's writing from prison. He's writing to these churches. And the book of Colossians is really a, um, it's really a book where there's a lot of heresies that are going around um, in Colossae. And he's basically writing to the church of Colossae and he's saying, you guys are faithful in Christ. I just want to reiterate the truths that you guys know and you believe and to stay away from these heresies that are being presented. Um, so it's really kind of like a preventative book of warning them and of you know establishing, again, the truth that they had known. Um, and the theme of the book is really that Christ is Lord of all creation and he's the ultimate, he, he has preeminence. He's the ultimate in everything, all right? And a lot of that stems from the heresies that they were facing as a church. So some of the heresies, and I didn't know this until I studied out this, um, was studying this week. So some of the heresies they were facing were um, Gnosticism. Um, obviously, a lot of these beliefs weren't there at the time, but today we would know them it's not really any one in particular, but there was flavors of Gnosticism, Arianism, Asceticism, and Judaism. They basically took a lot of these bits and pieces from these different um, heresies, and they were kind of like meshing it together into this, I'm going to call it false version of Christianity. All right. So at the core is um, essentially this idea that God is good, which is good, and matter is evil. All right, so you got your good and your evil. And so from what stems from that is they believe that God created everything, all right, including Christ, all right? So there's this false heresy that Christ was a created being. So we're going to see Paul basically debunk that, and he's going to hit it head on immediately. And um, so he basically, it kind of consent, it kind of goes downward from there. So they believe that Christ was a created being along with everything else, um, so they believe that he was created. They believe that angels, there's this, almost the taste of angel worship because they believe that angels were essential to the Christian faith and to salvation. And so Paul is going to essentially take the level that they've placed angels at and he's going to lower them down and say, Christ is preeminent. Christ is the most important. So they dem- that since they also would say that matter was evil, the heresy that was, being pre- that was there in Colossae would have denied the humanity of Christ. Okay? And they would have denied that Christ was human because how could someone that is so good take on flesh, which is evil? So, and we've reread in, um, I believe it's Galatians, that um, as soon as you do that and you take away his humanity, you really have an issue with the gospel because Christ has to be our representative, right? He has to be born of a virgin. He has to be 100% man. He's also 100% God, but he has to be 100% man so that he can be a representative. So that's extremely important. And Paul, Paul is going to basically hit it head on from the very beginning in chapter 1. All right. So they denied the sufficiency of Christ and his sacrifice. They added works. They added circumcision. They added some of the Judeo 
um, beliefs and activities that they said was essential for, for uh, salvation. And then they also added a self-denial. Um, so basically, in order to ascend this, I'll say it, the spiritual ladder, you have to deprive yourself from certain, um, whether it be food or certain privileges, um, kind of like the monks, you know, where they would deprive themselves for it. So they would say that. So that's some of the heresies that was facing the church. And Paul is going to hit on that immediately in chapter one. So let's move into our questions. And we are going to take our time going through this because I think that Paul is basically goes at these heresies head on immediately. So the first one, he is the image of what? Yes. Yes, he's the image of the invisible God, okay? He isn't a created spirit. He's the exact, he was create, all right, he was the exact image of the invisible God. He isn't just created after the image of God as we are, where we have attributes and we have traits that mirror what our creator looks like, but he is the exact imprint. I think Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, Okay. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Okay? So Christ, and he says in John 14, 6, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Okay? So you see this, there isn't this picture that God is up here and Christ is the top tier of everything that was created. No, we see Christ and God as one. Okay? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So he is the image, he's the perfect image of the invisible God, all right? He's the firstborn of all what? Creation, right? So I was reading this and I'm studying this and I'm like, my first instinct was, if you're facing all of these heresies, why do you say that he's the firstborn of all creation? Because in my mind, if you don't know the context of what he's saying, that's not going to make a whole lot of sense and it's going to be kind of confusing. But let's look at it a little bit. So he's not saying that Christ is the firstborn. Okay? Based on the context of this passage and multiple other passages where he talks about Christ being the firstborn, what, is, what do you think he means when he's saying he's the firstborn? Anyone? Yes. Right. First and preeminent, he is the absolute pos top position or rank. Okay, there's no one that's even close to him. He is preeminent. He is the top. A good example would be Jacob and Esau. Okay, Esau was born first, but it was Jacob who God loved. Okay, so and I found in Psalm eighty-nine twenty-seven, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So there, I f I feel like you get a good taste of all right, firstborn. And then almost a description of he's the highest, okay? And that was referring to Christ as well in Psalms. All right. The other thing that really kind of debunks the idea that he was actually created or he was the firstborn, so, so to say, is the exact, is the very next line. It doesn't allow it because what's the next one? By him, all things were what? Created. All right. So now at the very, the very next line is by him, everything was created. All right, so he can't be born, okay? Paul lists reasons for his preeminence, and one of them is that by him all things were created, okay? 
So he can't be created if everything were created by him. And in John 1, 3, it says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Christ is the creator. Christ is God, okay? Jesus is God, and he created all things. This includes thrones, dominion, rulers, and authorities, all right? So this is uh, their way of saying, this is kind of like the angels and the, the ranks of the, in the spiritual realms. He created those. Okay, he's not, he's not a created being where Christ is at the top of the, you know, the angel realm. He is God, okay? And that includes all of these angels, and I think we're going to go to, make sure I've clicked the wow, that is small. Sorry about that. So Hebrews 1, 5 through 9 um, says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn, as you said, you see firstborn into the world, he says, let all, God, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he make, of the angels, he says, he makes his wings, angels' winds, uh, and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have... You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with all, with all of gladness beyond your companions. Sorry, that was much smaller than I thought. I hope you guys were able to read that. Um, so throughout Hebrews, he begins um, the book of Hebrews, and we're going to get there in a few weeks. But the author stresses the importance that Christ is more important than any of the angels, and he's authority is not even close to being on par with them. So let's continue on. Oh, I want to go back. There we go. Okay. So all things were created by him. He is what? Yes. Right. So John 1, 1 to 2 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All right. So Christ has existed from the very beginning. Again, emphasizing the fact that Christ is God because Christ is outside of time, okay? Only deity exists outside of time and space. So here is he stressing Christ was there in the beginning, okay? Christ existed, he is eternal, he is God, okay? Not only did he create it, but he's the one holding everything together. Every atom, okay? He is holding, and he's the only, only reason everything, uh, Hebrews 1.3 says, Christ upholds all things by the, by the word of his power, okay? So not only did he create everything, but he's still holding all things together. He's still crucial in creation. He's still involved, and he still holds everything together. All right, he is the head of the what? Yes. Right, so he's the head of the body, the church. All right, so... Christ is not just an angel that is playing a role in someone getting saved. No, he is the one who gives life to the church. He's the one that guides the church. He is preeminent in the church. He is the head of the church, and he is the head of the body, which is us. All right. So, he is, uh, the next one, he is what? Yes. Right. So you get the firstborn there as well. So he's the beginning, all right? And of all those that are being saved, 
he is the highest position. He's the firstborn. He was the firstborn from the dead um, when he rose from the dead after his crucifixion. All right. So Paul concludes this whole section of stressing the preeminence of Christ by what in the last one? I think I just gave it away. Right. In everything, he, he would be preeminent, right? So he basically concludes the whole thing with, all right, based on everything that we just established, Christ is above everything. He is preeminent in everything. There is nothing that he's not preeminent, all right? For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, okay? It wasn't a distribution of the deity of God amongst all these little created things. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in one man, and that was Christ, all right? So he is preeminent, he is God, and the full, the full deity of God dwelled in Christ. All right, let's move on to the second set of questions. All right, so Paul rejoiced in his sufferings for the sake of the church. What was Paul's stewardship from God for the believers in Colossae in, verses, in verse 25? Right, right. So he, he wanted to make the word of God fully known. He wanted to make sure that they fully understood the word of God. And he is, he wants, them to, ma- he wants to make sure that they're established in what they believe and that it is 100% accurate to the word of God. So what was Paul's goal as he proclaimed the truths about Christ to the church? Verse 28. Yes. Right. Right, so his goal wasn't to make sure that everyone got the gospel and they're saved and he's like, check it off, they're saved, I'm done. No, he wants to be able to present them mature in Christ and I believe that that should be our goal as a church as well. Our goal is not, n- not only to present the gospel to someone and to say, all right, perfect, now you're going to heaven. Congratulations, I hope you get, live a good life. No, once they're saved, what are we supposed to be doing? Yes. Right. So once someone's saved, the next step is discipleship. So you're wanting to show them what the Bible says. You're wanting to show them what the Word of God says. And you're wanting them to mature in their faith so that they can have a solid relationship with God and so that they know who their creator is. All right. So the, the heretics in Colossae were stressing and they were teaching that only the elite could have that maturity in Christ, all right? So Paul is basically saying, I want to present all of you as mature in Christ. I want to make sure all of you are to the point where you understand who your God is and what he did for you. All right. Was Paul doing all this with his own power or energy? No. No, and he wants to make sure that they understand that it's through God, right? Paul is not taking any credit. He doesn't want any credit for anything that's going on. Everything he's doing is through the power of God. And he wants them to know that Christ is, it's through everything that Christ, it's through Christ's power that everything he's doing, it's all because of Christ. All right, so that was, I had a question um, for you guys. Let's move on to chapter two. Uh, all right, perfect. So chapter two, Paul uses two metaphors to explain what has occurred within these believers. What metaphors does he use in verse 11 and 12? Right, circumcision and baptism, right? So the circumcision is one made without hands, right? So we've seen that in the last couple books. So this isn't talking about physical circumcision. This is circumcision of the heart. 
and we see baptism. All right, so next question. According to verse 12, what does baptism symbolize for the new believer? Yes. Right, right. Baptism doesn't save anyone, right? It's a picture. So when we have a baptism, and we do it here as well, it's a identifying with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and raised to walk in newness of life, right? Based on what he did for us on the cross, it's identifying with Christ, and it's um, essentially dying to our flesh, right? It should be a picture of, I've crucified the flesh, well, I've died to the flesh, and I'm raised to walk in newness of life. So sin no longer has power over us because of what Christ did on the cross, okay? No part of this has anything, any bearing on salvation. It is a outward symbol to others so that they can, so that we can proclaim what Christ has done for us. All right. So next question, what does Christ's death on the cross do for us sinners who are dead in trespasses? Yes. Right, right. So I'll be completely honest. I uh, know it's probably not right to have favorites, but this passage was absolutely amazing, and I think we need to read it. And you who were dead in, our tre- in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us and its legal demands. Set he, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So we're going to talk about this This a little bit, all right? So we have been unified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, okay? And we have been forgiven. Christ forgave every single one of our sins. There's nothing else that remains. There's no work that needs to be done by us. He forgave it all on the cross, and he canceled our debt, all right? So here the Greek word is uh, that he uses here is erased. He completely erased it. There's nothing that remains. It was all erased at the cross, all right? Okay, and he poured out his blood to cleanse us from our sins. And Isaiah 1.18 talks about, um, though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Okay, he washed our sins away with the blood of the cross. So then moving back real quick, because of that, in effect, where does that leave the demonic powers in verse 15? What does it say about them? Yes. Right. They're powerless. They're disarmed. They have no ammunition. So there's this almost, I, I, I read through this and I couldn't get out of my mind the picture of this courtroom. Okay. You're in this courtroom and there's these accusers that are standing against you. And before the cross, they could hold up this record of debt. Okay. And we had a record of de- debt or decree against us, namely the Mosaic law. He could hold up the law and say, these people have not kept your law. They're guilty. And he would have been 100% right, right? Because we had a record of debt that we couldn't pay. There is no way we could pay it. And he canceled our debt on the cross. And we are completely forgiven. He, he nailed it to the cross, okay? And Christ's victory strips the demonic powers of any grounds that they may have had of accusation, okay? There's no, they can't, they can't accuse us anymore because we have Christ's righteousness. 
through his death on the cross. He strips them of that. So now they essentially have no ammunition. They're standing there. They're like, well, there's, there's nothing we can blame them on because of the righteousness of Christ. And it's only because of Christ and what he did that they have no grand, ground to stand on. So, um, yeah. Hebrews two fourteen through 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We were subject to lifelong slavery, and Christ saved us, and he gave us his righteousness and canceled our debt by nailing it to the cross and forgiving us. All right. Let's keep on moving because I think I'm going to run out of time. All right. Chapter 2. Paul debunks the false teachers that were advocating a number of Jewish observances as being essential for spiritual advancement. What Old Testament activities were these false teachers promoting? Yes. Right. Yeah, so they're listing out these things and they're like, oh, you got to keep this. They're trying to add works to it. And since we've been forgiven, right, and our righteousness isn't dependent on what observances we keep, right? It's dependent on Christ and his righteousness. We've been set free and we don't have to, there's no bearing on these activities for our salvation, right? And so he, he brings up with another, he another, brings up with another point and according to verse 17 and Hebrews 10, 1, why aren't these activities essential for us as believers now? Whereas they were essential in the Old Testament. Yes, Hutch. Right, right. So all of these activities, right, in the Old Testament, they pointed, they pointed to Christ, right? They were a shadow of, this, of what was to come. So why would you look at the shadow when you can see Christ? Okay, and so that's the picture here. This, the substance belongs to Christ. There's no reason to participate in these activities because now we have Christ, which is better than these, these activities that were up, you know, a shadow or a, a, a basically so we could see a portion of who Christ is. But now we can see Christ. And true spirituality doesn't come through external rules, but through a personal relationship with Christ. And that's what was important. All right. So let's move on to, here we go. All right. So moving on, what does Paul call the believers to do in verse 6? Yes, sorry. Yes, yes. He calls them to walk, walk in Christ, living in union with him, and having a lifestyle that's patterned after the word of God. All right. Being a believer isn't just going to church on Sunday and Wednesday. Those are typical activities that believers do, but being a believer should be a daily walk with Christ. Seven days a week, and it should, your life should be patterned after God's word and what he tells us in his word. Walking in the spirit would be another way to say this. All right, so practically, what does this look like for us today? Yes. Right. 
So there's that aspect of obedience, but it's not because you're trying to achieve your own righteousness. It's because you love your Savior, and it's because you love him. And so out of that love comes obedience to his word. All right. What two things does Paul use in verse 7 to remind them of their firm foundation and what they have already been taught? Yes. Right? Yep. He uses, I think he used the picture of what, a tree and a building, right? So he used a picture of the tree. So this eternal, it happened, your eternal planting happened at salvation. But we're, there's a continual growth or sanctification where, being, where we're being conformed to the image of Christ. And this is a daily process and this is a continual process that we won't achieve on this earth, right? It's going to be a continual, we're never perfectly going to look like Christ on this earth. It's going to be a continual process where we're going to be reading his word, we're going to be studying, we're going to be fellowshipping with other believers, and it's a continual process um, as we live out our life here on this earth. All right, so last two questions are pretty quick and easy, so we're going to go through them pretty quick. In whom does the whole fold, in whom does the full fullness of deity dwell bodily. Kind of already talked about this. It's Christ, right? So he basically has gone through this whole thing. It's Christ, okay? And also, Christ is the head of all rule and authority. So Christ is preeminent, 100% preeminent. All right. In chapter 2, Paul is urging the believers to not be deceived by the elemental spirits of the world or demonic spirits. What argument does Paul make in verse 20 as to why these believers do not need to submit to the spirits of this world. Yes, Jeff? Right. We died to them. We've been set free in Christ. So we're, no, we're not obligated to these things. Okay? So he's, here he's, he's battling the uh, asceticism. So we see like, you know, like how monks would, they're trying to add works. They're trying to add, um, oh, well, you need to, you know, hold from eating for a week. All right, well, that's not in scripture, okay? And so Paul is saying that you've been set free. You don't have to, you don't have to do those things. You don't have to submit to these regulations. Um, I think he, he specifically says, do not submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. So here he's making reference to those things where they're trying to hold back from something or self-denial to deprive yourself from something. As believers, we have been crucified with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. What characteristics should be evident in this newness of life? Yes. Fruit of the Spirit, right? So we've got the fruit of the Spirit, and that should be evident in our life. As we walk with Christ and as we seek to serve him, we should have fruit of the Spirit. We should be walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh. All right, moving on to chapter 3. All right. If we've been crucified with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life, which things should we put to death? Craig? Right. So he lists them out. So the Greek word literally means to kill or to put to death. So this is very little literal interpretation. Okay. And it's constantly bringing your flesh into subjection and saying, I'm going to serve God rather than my sin. Okay, walking in the spirit, as we've already talked about. Um, 
denying your old self, right? We get the picture of the old self and the new self. So you want to put away everything that was part of the old self and you want to walk in the spirit and you have that new self, all right? So as believers, we have put off the old self and put on the new self, which is doing what? Yes, Ty. Right, so you have this picture of renewal, right? And so we're being renewed in after the image of our creator. So I, I think it's interesting that he emphasized the fact that it's creator. He doesn't just say being, at, being uh, renewed after the image of Christ. He's like, it's our creator. So Christ created everything. Okay, the new self becomes more and more like Christ. Um, and we're being renewed after him. Uh, makes me think of Romans chapter 12, uh, 1 and 2 being renewed after him. All right. So, is there any distinction between believers as the body of Christ? No. No, there's no distinction. As individuals, we have put off old habits. We should put off old habits ourselves, and the church should, there should be no barriers within the church. There should be no distinction. There should be no cultural or racial barriers. We are all one, and we've seen that throughout the last several weeks, as we are one in Christ, okay, and we are all created in the image of God, right? So we're supposed to reflect that, and we're supposed to reflect the love both within the church and outside of the church, right? So that others can come to see him as well. All right. Okay. So in contrast to the the attributes laid out in verses 5 to 9, what does the new self look like? Yes, Craig. <laughs> it is a good list. Mm. That is a good list, right? Okay. Sounds a lot like the fruit of the spirit, right? So as we as we have the new self and we're renewed in Christ, we're gonna have attributes that are gonna reflect um, these. I think one of the things that Paul brings out that I think is extremely important is that of all these traits what is the most important attribute that binds everything listed together? Love, right? Because if all of these things are not done in love, then they're works, right? Okay, if I'm doing these things and I'm, you know, under my breath, I'm mumbling and grumbling and, oh, I gotta show this, I gotta do this. Well, now you're just doing works, right? You're not doing it in love. You're not doing it out of love for your creator and you're not doing it out of love for one another. So it's important that we do everything in love, okay? Love is extremely important. In verse 17, we are told to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does this look like? What would this look like for someone? Do everything for him. So I, the, only th- the only thing I could think of is that in everything I do to glorify God, right? So whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's the wilds of the theme of the wilds, and uh, I think that's the best way to describe it, okay? We should be serving Christ, but in everything we do, even in the smallest activities, if that's eating or drinking, do everything to the glory of God so that he can be magnified. All right. On to chapter 
We might finish early. All right, here we go. Chapter 4. What does Paul urge the Colossian believers to continue doing in verses 2 and 3? Prayer, right? So he wants them to be persistent, and he asks them to pray for him specifically, right, in his ministry, that God would open the doors, okay? Paul is not going through his ministry of his own power. He's not opening these doors to share the gospel, and he recognizes that. He recognizes the fact that it is only through Christ, and it is only through Christ working and opening up those doors that Paul is able to minister and share the good news of the gospel with everyone that he's meeting. So he's, he's stressing the importance of prayer, and I think he's done this in almost just about every book so far, that prayer is extremely essential. And Paul wants them to pray for him in his ministry that God would continue to open the doors to share the good news of the gospel. So in verse 3, Paul urges them to pray for him um, that God would open the door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. This is the second time in this uh, book that Paul has referenced this, mini- this mystery. In your own words, how would you describe this mystery that he's talking about? He's talked about it in, uh, I think it was Ephesians and Philippians, but be wrong. Yes. Yeah, right. It's the mystery. It's, it's the gospel, right? Okay. The mystery that was, a, it was a mystery for the whole, everything leading up to Christ. They got little pieces that they would see throughout the Old Testament, right? And they would get an idea of what was to come, but the mystery wasn't revealed. Um, but now we know what the mystery is. The mystery is that Jesus Christ would come to this earth live a perfect sinless life, and die as a sacrifice to save us from our sins. So Paul encourages the believers to walk in wisdom towards unbelievers and make the best use of their time. How can you make the best use of your time today? Yes. Right, right. So we, we, have, we have a mission field, essentially, right? So we should be sharing the good news of the gospel with people that we come in contact with, and we should be um, speaking with boldness of the hope that lies within us. And no, I think a lot of times, me personally, and I don't know if anyone else is like this, I try to put the pressure on myself of, oh, well, I need to say the right words, I need to do the right things. But as Paul evidenced, you know, early in this chapter, Pray that God would open the doors. I think a lot of times we forget that it's God that opens those doors and it's God that does the work, right? We just have to be willing tools. We have to be willing to allow him to use us in those instances and we have to serve him, right? So there's, we need um, good use of our time is serving. Um, okay, so we got witnessing to others, serving in the church, discipling others, and Spending time with God and his word and prayer, right? And don't discount prayer. I know that a lot of times it's easy to, s- to say, well, I did my devotions for the day. But we should be constantly in communion with our Father and be in prayer, talking with him. So we, uh, to have that communion with him, right? Because how, uh, what kind of relationship would you have with your Father if you talk to him like, 
All right, so let's say you pray for him, pray at every meal. What kind of relationship would you have with your father if you're praying, if you're talking to him three, for one minute, three times a day? That's a pretty poor relationship, right? Okay. We should be striving to have relationship with our father. We should be in his word and we should be talking to him, praying without ceasing, okay? Constant in communication with our heavenly father as we strive to serve him and as our lives are conformed more and more into the image of Christ, who is the creator, who is preeminent, who is God, okay? And that was essentially Colossians. Um, so let's go ahead and uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that we can depend on your word and thank you for the fact that um, your word has no errors and that we can depend on it and that we can trust your word um, in every situation. Help us to rely on you. Help us to be in constant prayer and communion with you um, so that we can have that relationship and so, th so that we can have a um, so that we can have that firm relationship with you. Help us to strive for that. Help us to glorify you with what we do and say. And please be with us as we go into our worship service that you would be magnified and that you'd be glorified. And I pray this all in your name. Amen.